Gracious God, our Father, uh, we thank you indeed for the privilege that you give to us through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, of coming to your own nearer presence and learning from your word. Thank you that your word is given not simply to inform us and to give to us clarity in terms of our perspective, but you use that word by your Holy Spirit to transform us as well. And it's a wonder to us that you're able to take such unpromising raw material as ourselves and so work by your spirit through your word to chisel out of our lives the very likeness of your son in such a manner that his will indeed be the praise and the glory of eternity. And so as we come to look at this book of the Bible again this evening, uh, it is our common prayer, Father, that you would give to us clarity in our thinking, that we might be taught by your Holy Spirit, that you would give to us ears to hear, and that your Spirit might indeed so use his word to liberate our lives and our living and to empower us in our service of your Son. Grant us then your help and blessing as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome, as I say, to this um, next one. It is number five um, in terms of the themes, the key words that we're looking at um, in Romans. The overarching theme, you'll recall, is that of salvation. And uh, this is the fifth of the key words. Um, there is a, a very definite and a very clear progression in Paul's uh, argument here as he sets out in a very orderly fashion the uh, essence of his message. Uh, that message, not just Paul's message, it's the message of the Bible. Um, it is about a God who saves and uh, the name that is given to the Son of God, Jesus, uh, draws attention to precisely that. It's a Hebrew word, uh, Yeshua, meaning the Lord saves. And uh, as we've followed through Paul's argument over the course of the past weeks, starting with that good news, uh, underlining that it's good because it's dependent upon grace. God does it all. We receive that by faith and, uh, and yet still wrestle with the reality of sin, which is what we looked at last time in chapter six and seven of Romans. And what Paul was underlining there was that the, the power of sin has been broken. That's broadly speaking, chapter six. And therefore, we have to, to reckon on that being the truth about ourselves. The power of sin has been broken. But chapter seven, the pockets of sin, sin which still remain within us, uh, must be battled. And that tension can be a wretched tension in our experience. And the, uh, the, the recourse that Paul has is, is really what he moves on to in this next chapter, chapter eight. Um, the Lord sets us free from that, comes to our aid, so that the, the renewed mind that seeks the will of God and de delights in the word of God, and the truth of God, and the way of God, um, as we battle against those uh, uh, renegade members where that uh, sinful propensity still uh, persists in our lives, um, God has given to us in Jesus um, that which enables us to live liberated lives. And so this chapter that we move on to now, chapter eight, is all about freedom. Um, and there is uh, a universal 
and enduring longing for freedom. When I was growing up as a young boy, and I date myself, I appreciate my confessing to this, um, uh, one of the uh, the books that I, I really reveled in, or the series of books that I reveled in, were the books by George Adamson about Elsa the Lioness, um, Born Free, Living Free, and Forever Free. And it was that theme, I think, of uh, freedom uh, that that I found so compelling, even in the the kind of animal world, the the way in which that played out. Um, you are all familiar, I'm quite sure. Uh, and if you're not, then you haven't really lived. If you haven't seen the film Braveheart, there is that scene where Wallace is uh, meeting his end, and his his final utterance was that uh, that huge, loud uh, scream of freedom. And Nelson Mandela's book I've put up there, the picture of that um, called The Long Walk to Freedom. Um, it is a, a very pervasive theme. Uh, and it's it's one of the the points of engagement, I suppose, with the the world in which we live, the people that we move among. Um, freedom is just as real an issue for them as well, and it's very much bound up with the uh, the message of salvation. In some ways, um, it is the core component of salvation, and that's why it's not bang central, but it's uh, it's pretty much right at the centre of Paul's. Uh, analysis of the message that God uh, gives to us. Um, it, it comes into this as a very centerpiece, uh, the freedom that we now know in Jesus. And, and this is not simply something that Paul is uh, keen about. It is the theme in many ways of the whole Bible. Um, in the Old Testament, the uh, the basic definitive drama of the Old Testament is the story of the Exodus. Um, and, and you get in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, you get um, one of the great um, paradigms, as it were, of salvation, where the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, and there's a sense in which um, those couple of verses um, condense into them the, the whole message of the Bible. Uh, it's about a God who has seen us in our misery, who hears our cries, who feels our pain and who comes and who comes in order to rescue, to set us free, to deliver us from the bondage that otherwise is ours and to bring us not just out of that, but into a new realm. Uh, a realm that is good, that is spacious, where it's not just constant, hard, frustrating work, but where there is liberty. And that note of freedom struck so early and so centrally in the Old Testament is one that um, runs right through the, the New Testament as well. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13, you were called to freedom. Um, and it is this notion of and this experience of freedom in Jesus Christ that Paul is now going to uh, be speaking in chapter eight. Um, it's uh, perhaps helpful and uh, striking to find that when he wrote to the church in Corinth in his second letter, chapter uh, three of second Corinthians at verse 17, uh, he says where the spirit is, there is freedom. Um, and it is through the Spirit of God that this freedom is actually known and experienced. It's one thing to, to know it in theory, 
uh, to understand that Jesus has set us free from the guilt of sin and has set us free from the power of sin, but we are meant to experience that freedom, to know it experientially as well as theoretically. And it is the Holy Spirit through whom we come to know that freedom. And it's therefore no accident that the Holy Spirit is referred to 19 times in the course of this single chapter. You can count it for yourself, but uh, um, that's no accident. There is that connection between the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the enjoyment and experience of that freedom that lies so very much at the core of um, the message. Now, let me give you a, a quick um, indication of the, the route that we're going to take through chapter eight. Um, this is, uh, I, I don't say it's the definitive way of, of uh, looking at the chapter, but it, I think it's a helpful way to, to recognize the different dimensions of freedom that, uh, that lies at the heart of the Bible's message. Um, and that's how the, the chapter breaks up. And that's how we'll look at it this evening. I think it's a helpful way to, to work our way through it. Paul is very orderly in the way in which he thinks, the way in which he writes. There is a definite order. It's not just random stuff that he comes out with. Um, it is progressive and he is building an argument here. And he starts, therefore, in verses one to three with our being set free from forsakenness. And what he's talking about here is the way in which we come to enjoy the peace of absolution. Um, the next slide will show you how this um, initial section of the, the letter um, breaks down. Um, we enjoy the peace of absolution. Um, the fact of our sin, um, and that's a reality uh, that the, the scriptures are always adamant about. We, we are sinful men and women. And the fact of our sin exposes us to the wrath of the righteous God. We are guilty by ourselves and the specter of judgment and condemnation hangs over us. Um, and therefore we struggle on account of our falling short. We know enough about ourselves to recognize that uh, whatever we may uh, come across as to other people, we know that our attitudes are amiss often enough. Um, all sorts of different ways in which uh, uh, within ourselves there are things that are wrong, uh, the things that we think about, the attitudes that we adopt quite apart from the manner in which we engage with people and speak with we, people, the choices that we make, the priorities adopt and so on. And uh, always looking at the back of our minds is the anxiety that uh, he will give up on us as a bad risk, a poor investment. Um, and we struggle um, partly on account of our own uh, growing frailty and partly on account of our own inherent uh, sinfulness and our failures. Um, I think when, when people do move on into advancing years and uh, because you're all blanked out you'll appreciate I'm not looking at anyone in particular here but this is a, a struggle that um, older folk can have particularly those who all through their lives have gladly been very active in the service of God gladly used their gifts in uh, his service and uh, applied their time their gifts their energies in ministry in one way or another 
and now find that up in years they are simply physically not able to do so and are very restricted in terms of what they can do and there is always that that um uh, natural uh, concern that that maybe now that I'm I'm not really that much used to the Lord because of all the things that I used to do I can't do them the people that I visit I can't visit etc etc um, will the Lord walk out on me because because I'm past my sell by date because I can't contribute because I'm no longer as active as once I was um, I think you see a good example of that in Psalm 71, which is sometimes referred to as um, an old person's psalm. Um, it's a very helpful psalm in a lot of regards. And one of the illuminating features of that is that the psalmist is honest enough to, to acknowledge that. Um, the psalmist says, verse 9, and then again in verse 18, Do not cast me away when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. Even when I'm old and grey, do not forsake me, O oh God. There's uh, an urgent request. And behind that request is that, that lurking anxiety that many of us struggle with, particularly if uh, all through our Christian lives we have been really very active and gladly so. Now, what Paul is on about here is, uh, is precisely this um, being free now from forsakenness. Uh, he describes the essence of that in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, there is therefore a freedom both from the guilt of sin and from the penalty for sin. Uh, and what is that penalty for sin experientially? It is always forsakenness. Forsakenness is the condemnation on our sin. Um, Garden of Eden stuff, they are banished. Um, the end of chapter 7 of Matthew, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus saying, depart from it, I never knew you, forsaken. Uh, that is the condemnation of a holy God upon our sin. And the penalty for that has been removed uh, from uh, ourselves by Jesus. Um, it is, says Paul, a present reality that is therefore now no condemnation. It's not something that is future, but we're going to have to live with a, a little bit of anxiety about it. Meanwhile, uh, it is a present reality that is now no forsakenness. Not now, not in the future, not ever again. We will never, ever be forsaken. It is a present reality, and it is, says Paul, also a relational truth. It is now uh, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in relationship with him, uh, this is chapter five stuff again, everything that is true about him is now true about you. If you are one with him, that's what um, faith has done for you. It has made you relationally one with him so that everything that is true of him is now true of you. And therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus, um, there is therefore now uh, no condemnation. That's verse one, the essence of that freedom. Verse two speaks about the agent of this freedom, uh, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The first reference in the chapter now to the Holy Spirit. And he's speaking about the law when um, it's not the, the law as in a set of commandments, but rather the, the rule 
of the spirit of life, uh, his taking charge of your life, his being the one who, who rules your life, who now controls and directs and empowers your living. Um, the the word in the Greek is is capable of this this range of meanings, and here, the the meaning is the the rule. Um, he's now in charge. He's taken the reins of your life, the spirit of life, and he's speaking there about the liberating work of the spirit of God. He has set you free from the law or the rule, the control of sin and death, which previously operated in your life. In other words, a new power, a new order has broken in, which sets you free from the power or rule of sin and death in your life. And the basis of that freedom is then uh, given to us in verse three, uh, the freedom from forsakenness for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. God did. That's the essence of the gospel. It's good news. It's grace. God does it all. God did by sending his own son. Uh, now watch the, the language that he uses. Very careful about the way in which he, uh, he frames this by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, the Lord Jesus was the one who was forsaken, who bore that forsakenness and did so in our flesh and in our stead. And that's why he uses uh, this uh, terminology in the likeness of sinful flesh. Um, what he doesn't mean is that Jesus wasn't actually human. It just kind of looked like he was human. Uh, what he is saying is he, he assumed our humanity, but unlike us, he was without sin himself. And so uh, in the likeness, in the sense of um, it is our flesh, uh, he is like us in that it is a total assumption of our humanity, but unlike us, he was without sin himself. And as such, he was able to condemn, condemn sin in the flesh as being the one who himself was forsaken. Um, and that's why as he hangs there on the cross, quoting Psalm 22, he cried out to God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, he is not just piously quoting scripture as uh, almost his last words, as it were. Um, it is a genuine experience. He is experiencing that forsakenness, that, that knowledge of the abandonment of his father, that perplexity that goes with it because everything is now dark to him, a lack of comprehension. It has all become completely dark for him. And he cannot even refer to his father in heaven as his father. It is my God. Why? Uh, a lack of comprehension. It is total darkness, uh, experiential darkness, intellectual darkness. It is black as hell itself. Uh, he is forsaken. And it's interesting, on Saturday evening past, we were um, working our way through the book of Psalms. and We came to Psalm 88, uh, which is um, about the bleakest psalm in the whole Psalter. And um, it is exactly about this. It is the description of that forsakenness, what it is like to be utterly forsaken. And towards the end, the psalmist Haman there writes this, your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me all day long. They surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. 
And in, in many ways, what, what is being described there is what ultimately Jesus himself will bear in such a manner that we now in him will never have to bear that because that forsakenness has been exhausted by Jesus himself drained to its dregs there is there is no more forsakenness that um is in even a residual fashion to be borne by us and that's why the lord is able to say i will never leave you or forsake you um an old testament quote that's picked up in the new testament so that's the the first freedom we are free from being forsaken and as a believer um, no matter what you do, no matter how far you stray, no matter how far short you fall, you will never, ever be forsaken, uh, liberating, sets you free. Uh, you get up in the morning and you are never thinking, help, you know, what happens if I don't measure up today? Is God going to walk out on me? That's never, ever going to happen. Uh, and the, the spirit of God who takes control of our lives ensures that it doesn't happen. Moving on to uh, chapter um, 8, verse 40, verses 4 to 13, um, Paul is here talking about our being free from failure, not in the sense that we, we never, ever fail, but rather we are now free from failure being the, the necessary definitive truth about our lives. Uh, we are set free from that um, because we now enjoy the power of the Spirit. Our experience hitherto certainly has been one of failure. In some ways, that's what chapter seven has been on about. Uh, despite our best intentions and our best endeavors, we fail to live as we know that we should. And uh, that, that experience is well summed up in what has become a famous ditty. Uh, no one is entirely sure who composed it. Uh, John Bunyan is one of the front runners uh, for being the composer, but that's dubious. Um, the most likely is actually it was a, a, an 18th century Scottish preacher called Ralph Erskine uh, in whose work something quite similar to this runs but uh, there you have it to run and work the law commands yet gives me neither feet nor hands but better news the gospel brings it bids me fly and gives me wings um, a line that obviously Red Bull picked up, although they've had to change their tune a little bit. Um, and if you look closely at their adverts now and their slogan, you'll see that Wings is spelt by Red Bull with three I's in the middle. And the reason for that is that in 2013, an American by the name of Ben, Car uh, ben Carithers took Red Bull to court on the basis of um, uh, the fact that um, it didn't give him wings. Um, not even not even metaphorical wings he said it doesn't make any difference to me at all and therefore it's uh, trade description stuff and uh, the judge upheld that red bull didn't agree and so they simply settled out of court and changed their slogan to uh, gives you wings spelt with three double three eyes in the middle um but it's the the notion that uh, it's one thing to to know what we're meant to do but um, if we don't have the capacity to do it and that's what the gospel does it gives you wings and enables you now to fly and uh, that's um, something that appears in, as I say, the work of Ralph Erskine uh, in the uh, 18th century, a Scottish preacher. Uh, he wrote this, a rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw, uh, the language from the book of Exodus. But when the gospel, when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Uh, and that's what Paul is really ta talking about here. Um, he starts by pointing to the intent of the Lord in verse four. 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Um, and that's the intent of the law in uh, all that he has done for us in Jesus Christ. It is that we might now uh, be those in whom the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled. Um, you see pointers to that in the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 31 at verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will reprogram my people so that they, they learn to live. It becomes the, uh, uh, the second new nature that they have. They will learn to live that way uh, more uh, specifically in Ezekiel chapter 36 and at verse 26 and 27, uh, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. This is the promise of God that is, is applied to us in Jesus. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you, says the Lord. And I will move you by my spirit to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Um, and that's the intent of God in the gospel, not just that you and I might be forgiven and get a kind of freebie into heaven, but that our lives and our living might be transformed. And the way God has done that is through the, the gift of his spirit. I will put my spirit in you and he will cause you to walk in my ways. And so we, we're not just uh, applying ourselves and, and doing our level best, pulling up our socks and trying to do our best to, to live God's way. We are, are learning to be reliant upon the spirit of God who will do that for us. Uh, and that's why Paul in, in Galatians 2 says, I died and it's no longer I that lives, but it's Christ who lives in me by his spirit. And so he then goes on in verses five to eight to explain what the root problem is by referring to uh, what I've called the way of all flesh. Um, you can read these verses for yourself and, uh, and get the general drift of them there. Uh, what, he's, what he's wanting to do here is contrast those who live according simply to the flesh, in other words, in their own strength, without a dependence upon Jesus Christ and his spirit, contrast those who live according to the flesh with those who now live in, in accordance with the spirit of God, which you'll go on to in verses 9 to, uh, to 13. So here in verses 8 uh, to um, uh, five to eight, rather, he, he's um, making three important points about those who live according to the flesh, those who pay scant regard to the Lord and who um, endeavor simply to, to kind of live up to, to God's way of uh, life uh, in their own strength. Uh, he says these three things about them. First of all, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. Uh, rather than uh, on on uh, the the things of the spirit, they're concerned with uh, their own reputation, their own performance, their own advancement, rather than the reputation and advancement of God and His kingdom. Then he goes on to say that uh, to set the mind on the flesh is death, not life and peace. And the third thing he has to say here is that the mind that is set on the flesh, intent upon living in our own strength, by our own means, through our own wisdom, the mind that is set in the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. It cannot submit to God's law and cannot please God. And that's our natural condition, says Paul. 
Um, and, and that's the contrast he's drawing. Try living like that in your own strength, doing your own thing by your own wisdom. Um, it's, it's a dead end. And so he then goes on in the following verses, 9 to 13, to contrast that way of living with a life that is lived according to the Spirit. What he's talking about here is the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And again, there are uh, three important truths to which he points in these verses. And, and it's hugely important for you as a believer to, to recognize these truths. The first of which in verse 9 is simply uh, the reality of the indwelling spirit. You, however, uh, you're a believer, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter uh, whether you are an apostle or uh, uh, an non-entity in terms of uh, the Christian church, uh, no one's ever heard of you, it doesn't matter who you are, as a believer, you however are not in the realm of the flesh any longer, you are now united by faith to Jesus Christ, you're in a new realm, God has brought you out of that slavery, brought you into a new land, a new realm, and you are in the realm of the spirit if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. Flip side of that is if you do belong to Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ. That is God's gift to you. This is the experience and the privilege of absolutely every believer. That is God's gift to you. He has given you his Spirit. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27 applies to you. I will put my Spirit in you. Um, that is that is liberating to understand. You are now indwelt by the Spirit of God, and it's the, that truth to which the prophet Joel was pointing in that famous prophecy in chapter two of his uh, his book that is uh, picked up by the apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. On that day, says the Lord, I will pour out my Spirit on all my people. Um, they will all know and enjoy that ministry of my Spirit. And so verse 9, he is underlining the reality of the indwelling of the Spirit of God in the lives of every believer. So you lay hold of that. That's the truth about you. And it is a liberating truth uh, as well to grasp. Against this backdrop, obviously, he's talking about being free from failure. No, no longer are you trying to struggle on living out this Christian life in your own strength. You're doing it now in the power of the Spirit of God who dwells within you. And so he then goes on in verses 10 to 11 to speak about the, the ministry of the indwelling Spirit. Not just the reality of the, the indwelling Spirit, but now the ministry of the indwelling Spirit. What does the Spirit of God do? If Christ is in you, uh, i.e. by his Spirit, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, that still remains the case, and you're conscious of that uh, physically, and um, that you, you do grow old, you do get stiff, you do get injured, you do get ill, and one day you will uh, die, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, and we recognize it spiritually as well, that there are the pockets of sin that still remain within us. Nonetheless, the Spirit gives life, or the Spirit is life, because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, just think of that, it was by the Holy Spirit that Jesus was raised from the dead. You put him in a tomb, dead and buried, crucified in that cross, buried in the tomb, and a stone rolled in front, but the Spirit of God is able to raise the dead. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 
because of his spirit who lives in you. Okay, so you've got the reality of the Spirit of God. He dwells within the hearts and lives of every believer. What does he do? He makes you alive, spiritually alive, and ultimately, in every sense, alive. Uh, verse 10 underlines that that is a great present reality. The gospel is precisely this. He does it all. He makes you alive. Um, and, and that has application right across the spectrum of our living. Uh, now, I'm a preacher. That's my calling under God. And, and I ran a million miles from that because I'm naturally shy. I, I don't like um, being in the, the spotlight. I don't like public speaking. And it seems daft to me that God should call someone like me who's like that to, to preach his word. And I identified from very early days with Moses in the Old Testament, who said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. Um, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. To which the Lord replied, who gave human beings their mouths? As in, was it not me? Who makes them deaf or mute? Is it not me? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. And that for me was liberating the knowledge of the ministry of the spirit of God who enables me to do, to do what humanly I would just not be able to do at all. Um, that is the gospel. He does it all. Now go, says the Lord, I will help you speak. I will help you serve. I will help you, whatever it is he's called you to be and to do. I will help you do that. And I will teach you in any situation what to say, what to do, how to handle it, how to cope. I'll do that, says the Lord. Um, it's, it's liberating to get a hold of that, that the indwelling spirit of God, he has come to dwell in you, that that may be the truth for you. Um, and verse 10 speaks about that present reality. Verse 11 speaks about the future work of the Spirit of God by that same Spirit. We shall actually be raised ourselves from the dead so that even although our bodies do and will die, uh, we will be raised even as he raised Jesus from the dead. That's the assurance, the guarantee that he will raise us also. And therefore, we will live with that great surging hope that uh, uh, the Spirit of God, whose ministry we already know to some extent, will indeed continue that and uh, bring us to uh, resurrection life in the fullness of time. And he then goes on, verses 12 and 13, to speak about the particular activity of the Holy Spirit. Again, important to get a hold of this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, he says, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. We've already established that. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, the nature of the obligation that we now have is simply this. It is an obligation to the, the spirit of God. He has come into our lives in order that he might be the one to to take the reins of our lives and so we we have handed the reins over to him we have uh, said to him uh, lord you do it um you you run the show uh, you call the tune 
Um, that's the obligation that we have now. He has, um, he has taken charge of our lives to set us free from that which was a bondage, set us free from the guilt of our song, wrongdoing, so we're no longer ever forsaken, set us free from the, the bondage, the power of sin by breaking that power. And uh, we recognize that gladly and just hand the reins over to him. And what, what the Spirit of God is intent upon doing is cultivating in and through our lives, as we saw from verse 4, um, that righteousness, the fruit um, of the Spirit of God in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and so on, uh, Galatians chapter 5. That's what he's intent upon cultivating in our lives. He means to cultivate the fruit of a truly Christ-like character. Um, verse four again, um, he's underlined that. That's, that's why God has done this in our lives, in order that um, the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, might be lived out in our lives, that it might be seen in ordinary uh, lives of clay like ourselves, uh, how God is able to transform that and, uh, and display uh, increasingly the glory of his own person in the lives of his people. That's, that's what the Spirit of God is intent upon doing. And therefore, his primary activity is that of clearing the ground of stuff that shouldn't be there, clearing out the weeds, as it were, and digging up the ground. And uh, it is therefore by the Spirit of God that we learn to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Um, the language that he uses, the verb that he uses here, is, is a very extreme um, verb. It's not just kind of bash it on the head and knock it unconscious. It is annihilate it. Um, it is execute. It is um, put to death, kill it. Um, it's, uh, it's really the, the only instance where you are told so clearly and plainly actually to kill something. Uh, in the New Testament. And um, the, the point that Paul is making is, yet yeah, you do have to be ruthless. Um, attitudes, um, don't play with them. Um, uh, activities in which you engage, choices that you're making, don't just uh, push them to the edge and kind of keep them at arm's length. Don't try and do that. Kill them. Uh, if they're wrong, they will kill you if you don't kill them. So, so kill them put them to death. And that's what the Spirit of God is, is uh, always active seeking to, to do. Uh, I would love to spend a little bit longer on this because pastoral is, is such an important issue, this um, verses 4 to, to 13, um, the being free from always failing. Uh, put it like that because uh, we, we obviously do still experience failure, but we now no longer need to fail because of the, the power of the Spirit of God. That's the essence of what he does as he ministers within us. We must rush on though and move on to verses 4, 14 to 17. And here this is our being set free from fear. Um, and we begin to enjoy the privilege of sonship, as Paul would put it. Um, many of you will, will know the song by Jonathan David. Uh, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Um, and that's the, the contrast. Because you are a child of God in Jesus Christ, you are no longer a slave to fear. Um, it's a very widespread thing, this. Um, I've spoken to you before about the, the lady in Cumberland, 
who rang me up one night um, and asked if she could come and see with her friend, her colleague at work, who was a member of the, the congregation. And she had been for 40 years a devout, and I mean really devout member of the Roman Catholic Church. And for 40 years, she said, I have lived in fear. I never know whether I've done enough. And I'm always looking over my shoulder and thinking that somehow the Lord is going to catch me out and, and clobber me. And she lived with fear. It was that word fear. And for her, the, the essence of the gospel, when she uh, had it explained to her, was deliverance from this fear. She was set free from that fear. Uh, she, as the, the, the gospel was explained to her, and as we worked it through in the Bible, she said, that is unbelievable. That's just too good to be true. It is amazing. Why has no one ever told me this before? Uh, as she saw it in black and white for herself, but she was free from fear. And it is that perfect love which casts out that sort of fear. And the relationship in which that perfect love best finds expression is that of the father and child, the father-child relationship with God in Christ. He is God's son and in him, we therefore enjoy that filial love of the father for his son. Everything that is true of him is true of us. It's language and uh, imagery that is uh, used regularly through the Old Testament. You have it in the Exodus um, a narrative there. Um, Israel is my firstborn son. Uh, Hosea chapter 11 at verses one following, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over? You are my son. Jeremiah chapter 31 at verse 20. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I speak often against him, I still remember him. Why? Because he is my son. Uh, and all of that is pointing forward, obviously, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 14 to 16 uh, speak about the evidences of sonship. Um, remember, chapter 5 is, is crucially important here because you are now uh, one with Jesus, relationally united with him by faith. That's what has happened. You have become married to him. You are one with him. Everything that is true of him is now true of you because he is the son. You enjoy that sonship. And that's why Paul uh, frames this in terms of our sonship. Um, not because he he is sort of, um, uh, you know, exercising some sort of male prerogative, but rather because of our relationship with Jesus, who is the son. Um, and it's, it's that relationship that we have uh, now in him with God. All that he is as the son is now true of us. And that's why he uses the terminology of sonship question is how how do we know that we are his sons and daughters how, how do we know that we are the children of god and what he does here is he brings forward three different evidences of our being the children of god and and they're useful evidences um simply to fall back on um in uh, our lives the first two are really more objective the, the third is more subjective uh, but they are all important Verses 13 and 14, the first strand of evidence. Are you a child of God? Well, ask yourself this question. Do you deliberately, when you have strayed, do you deliberately make a point of returning to God? 
um, go back to verses 13. And um, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. In other words, if you are, if you remain uncomfortable at the things you're doing that are out of line with the living God and you, you're intent upon getting rid of them from your lives, um, then that's the way the spirit of God leads you. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. In other words, the deliberate putting to death the deeds of the body in verse 13 is the first evidence of sonship, because that's what's meant by being led by the spirit. He, he now holds the reins of your life. He directs us. And what he directs us to do, what he prompts us to do is to put to death these things. He, he nags away at you and doesn't give you an easy conscience about this. Hey, you know, there's, there's that attitude that you're adopting that, that shouldn't be there. The back of your mind, it's, it's just a kind of recurring niggle that's always there. You always think, ah, yeah, I should really do something about that. And not only does he prompt you to do that, he, he enables you to do that as well. He leads you to do that. And uh, this is through the spirit of God. And that's indicative of the new nature that you have, that you have been born again into that family. And as a child of God, you now led and directed and uh, prompted by the spirit of God, you are intent upon putting to death the deeds of the body. So the first evidence is simply that our deliberate returning to God. The second evidence is our instinctive recourse to the Father. Verse 15, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, the the number of this really is, is to ask yourself what happens when you hit a crisis in life, when you don't have time to think of the correct thing to say, the, the kind of appropriately pious Christian way to respond. How do you respond to that crisis? How do you react? What is your instinctive reaction? Uh, the things to notice here are, are these. First of all, the tense uh, that Paul uses is aorist. Um, and in the Greek, that means a once for all event in the past. Uh, the spirit you receive, that's aorist tense, uh, both times that he makes mention of that in verse 15 there. It's something that happened once off in the past. It's not something that you need to happen again and again. It has happened. You have been born again. And the verb that he uses uh, at the end of the, 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 the verse there, by him we cry, is the verb cradle which is the instinctive cry uh, sometimes almost nearly a scream of a child and the uh, terminology that is used he says is that of uh, Abba father uh, the address in other words is revealing you know how it is with a, a child when they you know they've been out playing and they're quite happy just to play around with a whole load of different adults around but then they maybe fall they maybe trip and and what they do is they come screaming to their mom or their dad they say mommy 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 or daddy daddy and and that's the only one they, they want to have uh, any recourse to at all that's the crisis and they don't have to think about their manners they don't have to think about whether they're making too much noise they just ball their head off and turn instinctively to their mom or their dad and that's what Paul is, is about there. What happens when you hit a crisis? Do you say simply, oh my God, uh, the standard OMG line, 
um, that that the world trots out in their crisis, and you you hear that regularly, uh, and it's very revealing when people use that terminology. You know immediately they they don't know the father, uh, or do you instinctively turn to your father and say, Father, uh, forgive me, Father, please help me, whatever it may be. Um, that's the distinction that he is drawing. And, and it's the spirit of God who prompts that instinctive cry in your heart. Um, the spirit who dwells within you prompts you in those moments of crisis to have recourse to the one who is your father in heaven. That's the second evidence. The third evidence in verse 16 um, we could happily spend, uh, you know, two whole evenings on this one. Um, it is an extraordinary experience that the Spirit of God sometimes gives. And I simply call this our definitive reassurance from the Spirit. It is direct, it is immediate, it is experiential, um, and it is uh, beyond words to describe the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. This is not objective. Uh, it is a subjective experience. Um, perhaps a way of thinking about it, just as a, as a kind of way of getting your head around this, is to think back to the uh, the story that is told in the Old Testament, First Kings chapter 3, where Solomon who has asked for wisdom, is given wisdom by God, and he immediately confronts uh, an awkward case. Two prostitutes come in. Both of them have had a, a baby, and one of them has the baby, uh, the baby has died. And uh, each, therefore, lays claim to this remaining baby. And um, Solomon has to judge between them. And there are obviously external tests that you might have applied. He didn't uh, have the opportunity to kind of do a DNA test, in which case presumably he'd have been able to get the answer quite easily that way. He might have ascertained some of the facts about, you know, the color of the eyes and uh, whether it looks like this one or that one and so on. Uh, but there was ultimately a subjective test that he applied. He said, OK, um, uh, let's just split the child in two um, and um, both of you can have half a child. Um, and he recognized immediately the mother who immediately said, don't do that. Let her have the child. He knew that was the mother because she cared for the child. It was a, a more subjective test. Now, this is subjective experience, but it is a very real experience. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones and his expositions of uh, Paul's letter to the Romans spends chapters on this one verse. Um, and I've tried to pull out here the, um, the most uh, uh, appropriate um, few sentences in relation to this. This, he says, is something subjective, something which essentially belongs to the realm of feeling and subjectivity and the emotions. It is something within us at a deeper level than the level of the intellect. That seems to me to be the vital point in this statement. In other words, this does not result from certain actions on our part. It is the spirit that produces it in us. It is not something of which you can persuade yourself. As we have seen by applying various tests, you can persuade yourself whether you are or are not being led by the Spirit, but that's not the position here. This is not in the realm of intellectual argumentation or demonstration. It is something of which one becomes conscious. And Spurgeon, uh, the famous Baptist preacher towards the end of the, uh, the 19th century, 
um, says this, I believe that the spirit of God sometimes comes into a mysterious and marvelous contact with the spirit of man. And that at times the spirit speaketh in the heart of an individual by a voice not audible to the ear, but perfectly audible to the spirit, which is the subject of it. He assures and consoles directly by coming into immediate contact with the heart. It becomes our business then to take the spirit's witness through his word and through his works. But I would seek to have immediate, actual, undivided fellowship with the Holy Ghost who by his divine spirit should work in my spirit and convince me that I am a child of God. Um, it is a, a, a powerful experience um, that, that very often is associated with um, difficult, demanding, um, frightening situations in which Christians find themselves and immediacy of communication from the spirit of god that is more real more audible than any physical voice can ever be um, more powerfully real um, those who for instance have been martyred uh, will very often testify to that sort of thing the spirit of god just coming to them in their hour of need and and impressing on their hearts you are my child and uh, and knowing that voice from on high in that sort of immediate way. It's not a conclusion they've drawn, but it is a reality they're experiencing. Uh, I would love to expand on that and maybe we'll have the opportunity at some point to do so, but uh, just round off this, uh, this section um, by pointing you to verse 17, where Paul is speaking there, no longer about the evidences of sonship, but the implications of that sonship. Uh, if we're children, then he says we're heirs. And he simply underlines that the privilege that we enjoy as the children of God is uh, incomplete. Uh, first of all, we, we have yet to inherit. The best is yet to be. We have present privileges, but also future prospects. Um, and the, the spirit of God is really just the kind of down payment that enables us to know that, um, that um, all that we've begun to experience now will indeed be known and enjoyed by us in full measure in the fullness of time. So it's incomplete as yet, wonderful as it is, and it is in Christ. We are united with him in his death as well as in his resurrection, and therefore we share in his sufferings as well as in his glory. You can't have the one without the other. If you're going to enjoy that resurrection power, you must live and share that crucified living. Um, wonderful passage that, again, free, um, free from forsakenness, free from failure, free now from fear. There's something almost blasphemous about trying to encompass the whole of chapter eight in one evening. It is such a rich portion of scripture. Uh, as I say, the, the core component of our salvation experientially is the enjoyment of that freedom. And the, the fourth dimension of that freedom is this being free from frustration. Um, quite a long section here uh, and an important one in which um, we enjoy the prospect of glory that really is what what lies at the back um, of this freedom from frustration you'll appreciate that um, frustration is in many ways one of the hallmarks of life in this world 
And this past year has underlined that reality experientially for many, many people. Uh, it has been very, very frustrating. Uh, very frustrating not to be able to see the people you want to see, to be able to do the things you want to be able to do and so on. Frustration is the hallmark of the world in which we live. And we are set free from that frustration. We still live in the world, uh, obviously, and therefore we are exposed to that, but we are set free. It's not now the dominant theme of our experience. Uh, the frustration, to some extent, that we experience has been given expression in the previous chapter, chapter seven, where our aspirations very often are not matched by our, ex uh, our achievements. Uh, we recognize that, we understand that, but we learn in the power of the Spirit of God to enjoy increasingly the freedoms that God gives to us. And so there is a sense in which we are a little bit like a stroke victim. We know what we want to do and what we want to say, but sometimes we can't translate that into reality and it is desperately frustrating. So you see here the, the way in which the section divides up. Uh, verse 18, the weight of the glory to come. Verses 19 to 27, the nature of the glory to come. And verses 28 and 30, the certainty of the glory still to come. Look at each of these in turn, starting now with the weight of the glory that is to come. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. There used to be a, a program a long, long time ago on the radio, and I think it was on a Saturday morning, in which um, they they kind of rated things as to whether you were actually getting a bargain. Uh, and they weighed one thing over against the, the cost and were able to conclude either yes or no, you're, you're either getting a bargain or you're not. And what Paul is saying is, um, this is, this is a no-brainer. Um, the weight of the glory that is still to come is, is infinitely greater, far exceeded by the, the weight of that future glory. The present sufferings are as nothing compared to that. He says the same in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, obviously, this light momentary affliction um, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that's the Apostle Paul speaking. His light momentary affliction is rather different probably from yours. Um, he's, he's talking about a life that has been characterized by imprisonment, by shipwreck, by uh, 39 lashes of the whip. Um, they, they stopped short of 40 because they figured 40 would kill you, uh, being stoned to death. And all of that, he, he brackets as, as a kind of light momentary affliction, not because he's a masochist, not because it's, it's not painful. It, it is hugely painful, but as compared to what is coming, it is as nothing. Um, it is just a light momentary affliction and it is an eternal glory beyond all comparison that is coming to us and that's uh, what he's talking about in verse 18 verses 19 to 27 he goes on to underline that the glory which is to come the glory which lies very much at the heart of the hope that we have as christians we are characterized by faith uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, by love uh, for those around us and by hope. Um, that glory, which is the hope that we have, involves a threefold renewal, you'll see. Verses 19 to 22, he speaks about that universal or cosmic renewal, the creation 
wait and eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Uh, in other words, for us to, to enter into the fullness of God's final freedom as in body and in spirit, we are conformed to Christ's likeness. The creation is waiting for that day in eager expectation. Why? Because the creation itself was subjected, Genesis chapter 3, to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. But he did so in a hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So it is a cosmic thing, the frustration of all creation. The whole creation groans and awaits the day when the true destiny of believers as the children of God is finally and fully revealed. Uh, because creation itself was adversely affected by the sin of humanity. So there's a lot in this world that is is not the way it should be. We, we recognize that it's a world that's full of beauty, sometimes stunning, staggering beauty, but at the same time we recognize it's just not, not the way it's meant to be. There is, there is so much that is um, amiss, so much that brings pain, so much that brings hurt, so much that is damaging. Uh, the creation itself was adversely affected by the sin of humanity. And, says Paul, in a similar way, the whole creation will be implicated in and enjoy the benefits of the glory that is to come, which is the undoing by God of that curse on sin. Uh, an undoing of sin and its consequences that has already been started by God and will be completed in the fullness of time. Um, and, and this really that Paul is talking about here is what is elsewhere referred to as the restoration of all things. Uh, and that comprised from the outset an integral part of the gospel message that the apostles preached. You find that in Acts chapter 3 verses 19 to 21 uh, where Peter says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that's in the here and now, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And there's, there's many a passage in the Old Testament that is looking forward, looking beyond even the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, looking beyond that to the day when the whole of creation will indeed be wonderfully restored. And of course, the book of Revelation culminates in that, in a restored uh, universe, a new heavens and new earth. Uh, you find the same thing in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Uh, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell at Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So there's, first of all, um, 19 to 22, there is that uh, universal renewal. Then verses 23 to 25, he picks up on more particularly uh, the physical renewal that we will know. Not only so, he goes on, not uh, now just the whole of creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly also as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, uh, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Uh, it's not just for the here and now, not just a new relationship with God, not just the enjoyment of uh, forgiveness, but it is in a hope of a day still to come that we were saved. 
But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we do wait for it patiently. So he's saying, um, yes, we do still groan. Uh, we are a people who are still waiting for something better that he describes as our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. Um, our adoption of sonship in the sense that uh, at the minute we are we are children and we're going to be heirs. We're going to enter into um, the full measure of our privileges as the children of God. Uh, and that's what he's referring to as our adoption to sonship. And uh, that's specified as the redemption of our very bodies. Uh, now, it's it's something that we are hoping for. He says we don't see it yet. Uh, in fact, we only see the opposite. Uh, all that we see at the moment is decay in our bodies and death ultimately in our bodies. That's what we see. But we are hoping for something uh, different and it is coming assuredly. Uh, our enjoyment of the work of the Spirit of God is the first fruits. In other words, the sort of down payment or the uh, deposit that God has given that guarantees that uh, the real deal will indeed be affected. So we have the spirit of God now coming to dwell within us. Uh, they are still um, uh, very mortal human frames that we have, this mortal body, but the spirit of God now dwells within us. And that spirit who, who has uh, raised Jesus already from the dead will raise to newness of life our mortal bodies. And uh, we look forward to that, the day when we shall be uh, conformed in body and in spirit to the very likeness of Jesus. We look forward to that. And I guess the older you get and the, uh, the more you are uh, conscious of your own infirmity and your own stiffness and your own frailty and your own weakness, one way or another, things that you used to be able to do and you can't do, the, the more glad you are that that's what is still to come. Verses 26 and 27 speak about a relational renewal as well. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. It's, uh, it's very liberating in prayer to discover this, that um, it's not all to do with, with you and you figuring out what should I ask here. Um, it's, it's the Spirit of God who comes to, to lead you and comes to enable you and help you in that weakness. And you know the feeling, we don't know what we ought to pray for at all. Uh, any number of different situations. I just had a, an email there during the course of the first half of our evening from Anne in Texas. Um, and, and what do you pray for in, in that sort of situation? Uh, for her, for the people in Texas, for her mom, and so on and so forth. Um, half the time, we, we, we don't really know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Sometimes through these wordless groans, we just are, are just groaning within. And Paul goes on, verse 27, he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he's the Spirit of God, the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And therefore, the, the groans that um, they don't even find words in your heart, but they are, they are taken by the Spirit. They, they, you pour out your heart to the Lord and that the Spirit of God is, is speaking that through uh, your groans. And uh, the Father comprehends what those groans are. We are, in a sense, uh, just like uh, infants, um, quite literally. Uh, in fans, unable to speak. Um, and through those early couple of years of a child's life, 
that's the truth. They, they, they can't. They can't string two words together. They don't have any words. All they could do is, is just groan and cry. And it's it's remarkable when you you kind of uh, wander into um, that sort of family life and you sit in there with a, a young family with a, an infant there. And uh, somehow the parents know and understand instinctively what this this wordless noise actually means. And uh, they, they will say, oh, you know, um, he's, he's tired or, he's, yeah, he's just asking for some food now. And you're thinking, really? How, how do you figure that one out? But parents, they, they understand these groans. And, and that says, Paul, that's, that's where we're at at the minute. And the, the Spirit comes to help us relationally as well. And in the same way as an infant grows into that relationship and becomes increasingly able to articulate things and communicate with words, so increasingly we are being transformed and uh, enabled by God to, uh, to relate to him in a fuller and more satisfying and more glorious manner. Um, that's the nature of the coming glory. It is universal. It is physical. It is relational, uh, where that uh, renewal is perfected. And then he speaks in verses 28 to 30 about the certainty of the glory to come. Uh, famous uh, few verses here. Um, well known, not always rightly understood. Uh, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Um, and what Paul means by that is, is not what you think is good for you, which usually equates to what I would really like in this situation, Lord, but uh, is bound up with the, the good, perfect purpose God has for you in Jesus. Uh, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Um, what Paul is pointing to here is the certainty of the glory that is going to be yours as a believer. And the culmination of God's eternal purpose in and through his son is that you and I, first of all, should be conformed to the likeness of his son. You, you won't lose your own personality. It will be distinctively you, the individual that you are, but you will be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. You will be able to know God as Jesus knows him. You will be able to love God as Jesus loves him. You will be able to serve God as Jesus serves him. You will be like him in terms of your character. You will be like him in terms of your experience. You'll be like him in terms of your fruitfulness. Uh, you will be made like Jesus. You will be perfected. You will be glorified uh, with the glory of God himself resting on you. And the, the reason for that is that Jesus, the son of God, should be and should always be the firstborn, the one who has the preeminence among many brothers and sisters. God loves family and desires that his son should be surrounded by adoring brothers and sisters who delight in him, who delight in one another and who give to him always the preeminence. 
and and that's God's uh, eternal purpose, the culmination of it, where it is all heading. Not just that you should be forgiven, not just that you should kind of scrape into heaven by the uh, the skin of your teeth, but rather that uh, you would be conformed to His likeness, and He should be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And um, the reason why you can be so clear and sure about it is is simply because God is God, and He is the eternal God, and He has formed this purpose in eternity and and because he is outside of time he 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 knows where it's going to end and he's already ensured that that's where it will end um and and that's the the whole process that paul is talking about here the different components of god's eternal purpose uh his foreknowing um that's a, a relational thing uh setting his love uh upon us and giving to his people that destiny before even the creation of the world. So your, your destiny in Jesus is not in doubt um, because God has, has already um, formed for you that destiny. You will be conformed to the very likeness of Jesus. And that was, that was uh, formed, that destiny, before you were ever born. Um, and it was with that destiny in mind that you were born. And then God, who has destined you for that, uh, called you by his Holy Spirit through the gospel message, called you powerfully to himself. And in the same way as when he called light into the darkness, there was light. Uh, so he called you out of the tomb into newness of life through that message. It was his call. He did that in pursuance of that purpose that he has for you in Jesus Christ. Therefore, he he declared you to be righteous. He declared that to be the bottom line truth about you. You are right with God. And those he justified, he also therefore glorified. That is the conclusion to the whole process that he's presently involved in by his spirit. The spirit has been given to dwell within you in order to, to, to transform you into the likeness of his son. And we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, says Paul in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3. Um, you can be absolutely crystal clear, sure that that glory is coming. And we're meant to rejoice in that. We are free now from frustration because we know where we're headed. Now, uh, we must press on, therefore, to the, the last um, section. And that's uh, verses 31 to 39. And we are free now from falling. This is the promise of security. Uh, we, we do have, I suppose, most of us, because we, we know ourselves well enough, uh, we do have a great fear that somehow we will fall. Uh, we we read often enough about other people who fall from grace, and we think, well, you know, maybe that's going to happen with me as well. And it can be a fear that can be paralyzing. It can be a fear that takes any joy out of our uh, experience. And Paul wants them to be clear that we are free now from falling. Uh, I, I once took part as a, a late teenager in a sponsored walk um, that went over the hills. It was a 10-mile sponsored walk. And, uh, and being a, a young, fit guy, I thought I would show up the rest and uh, would run the whole thing. Uh, and I did. 
I ran the whole 10 miles and I was streets ahead of everyone else coming back to the finishing part where, where there were one or two people who had organized it. They were there looking on and, and there was I. And literally 20 yards from the finish, I tripped and fell uh, and fell in full view of all the people who were watching and waiting there. It was uh, a most embarrassing, uh, I won't say the most embarrassing because I've had a whole load of embarrassing moments, but it was, it was singularly embarrassing uh, to fall like that. And um, that's sometimes what happens. Uh, we, we fall. I remember once uh, gave a children's address where I used a uh, long time ago, my eldest son as, as a kind of prop uh, he was just a, a little toddler at the time and um, to, to kind of demonstrate that it's not his hold upon me and not our hold upon God, but God's hold upon us. That is the important thing. I was saying it's 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 my hold upon him as his father. That is the crucial thing. And I was holding him by the hand. And um, lo and behold, uh, the, the blighter, he, he turned around and he bit my hand. And, and I was so shaken, I just let go of him immediately and had to change the whole thrust of the children's address uh, on the spot there and say, God's not like that type of thing. Um, and we have this fear that somehow it, it, it will all go wrong. And um, it's over against that that Paul is, is writing here. And um, he is speaking essentially about the covenant love that God has for his people, God's commitment to his people. Um, and it's for that reason that, uh, for instance, in Micah chapter 7 at verse 8, uh, a verse that uh, you do well to remember and then to, to come out with in the face of the devil when he mocks you and says, you are, you are a failure, you're a flop, you, you are just doomed to keep on falling. Uh, that verse, Micah chapter 7, verse 8, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I will rise. Uh, that's the truth. God will indeed keep his hold on me. And the end of Jude's um, letter there, uh, to him who is able to keep you from falling, uh, literally keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages now and forevermore. And you'll see there in those last couple of verses in Jude's letter, um, the, uh, the way in which God's salvation, he is our Savior, is being tied to his ability to keep you from falling. He is able to keep you from falling. Yes, even you, he's able to keep you from falling. Um, not uh, in the sense that um, you won't ever stumble like that, but, but even when you do stumble, it won't be fatal. So verses 31 and 32 um, speak about the commitment of God to his people. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, and he means by that not, well, you know, we don't really know, but but if he is, uh, he he means, and the, the Greek really brings this out much more clearly, since God is for us, that, that is the truth, God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So he's saying there, um, uh, since God is for us, not if, not a myth maybe about it, but it's a, it's a definite, since that's the case, uh, the best has already been given. 
He didn't spare his own son. He didn't hold back anything. God gives his absolute best. And what he's given, he's given him up, given him up unto death, even death on a cross. He has gone to the absolute lengths. He's, he's paid whatever price needs to be paid, no matter how great it is. And it is being on the principle of grace, not because you deserve it, not because you, you earned it in any sense at all, but he graciously deals with us like that. He's already demonstrated. That's how he deals with you. Uh, that God is for you. He is a great God who spares nothing, gives the best, will indeed always, um, for his own namesake, uh, secure our true well-being. He is committed to his people. And then finally, the last verse is the provision of God for his people. And what he's talking about here is the provision that God makes in the face of the three eventualities that we fear most as liable to see us falling. Verse 33, um, we fear accusation. We know that someone is going to point the finger at us, um, maybe drag up a lot of stuff from the past, maybe pull up all sorts of mud and fling it at us. Um, accusation. And so he, he addresses that, verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. And God has already made clear that there is now nothing that stands against you. You have been declared already, past tense, righteous. So no one can sling mud at you. Uh, if they do, you simply say, and it's usually the devil who, who uh, likes to, to fling this stuff at us and, and just put the knife in and twist it as well to make us feel absolutely rotten about ourselves and about life and about God and so on. Uh, we, we respond to that by saying, hey, that's already been dealt with. That's already been paid for. God who justifies. Verse 34, um, the uh, experience of condemnation. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life. In other words, his work standing in our place and bearing in his own person the condemnation of God, a holy God, upon the sinfulness of humanity. He's already dealt with that and completely dealt with it and has been raised to life is the demonstration that it's all been paid for. He is now at the right hand of God and he's actually interceding for us. So you don't have to be afraid of condemnation. You don't have to be afraid that, that anyone is going to be able to turn around and condemn you and say, you know what? You don't make it. You're not good enough. You, you have fallen short. Um, that's been dealt with. Uh, no one now can condemn you. That's back to the start of the chapter. Um, indeed, the one person, uh, Jesus, who has borne that condemnation on your part, he's now at the right hand of God and he prays for you constantly. He is always commending you to his father uh, and the one who, who is uh, able to lay hold of the hand of his father ensures that the hand of God is indeed laid upon you to guard you, to keep you, to help you, to provide for you in every single regard day by day. So uh, accusation uh, is not going to wash. Condemnation, that's not going to trouble you. And then separation, verses 35 to 39. Uh, what happens if things happen that, that are going to separate us from the presence of God? And he speaks here very realistically about uh, trauma in our experience, um, recognizing verses 35 to 36 that, yeah, there will be traumatic experiences that we'll have. Uh, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's his basic question. Shall trouble 
because uh, you're going to have trouble or hardship because you're likely to have hardship or persecution. You'll probably get that as well. Or famine of one sort or another, maybe food, maybe money, maybe this, that, and the next thing, or nakedness being left destitute or danger, or even the sword. Um, a whole load of things can happen to you. As it is written, for your sake, we do face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. We follow Jesus. We follow the one who was crucified. We follow a crucified savior. Uh, we can't discount the reality. There will be trouble uh, in this world, Jesus said. You will have trouble, but, but don't be afraid. I've overcome the world. And so he's speaking there about the spectrum of adversity that you and I may well in one form or another experience. Uh, tribulation persecution, deprivation, uh, even extermination. Uh, and the scriptures are, are upfront about that. So, yep, it, it's going to happen. Um, but in the midst of that, um, over against that, the, the trauma in our experience, what he points to is the triumph through our saviour, verses 37 to 39. No, he says, in all these things, not skirting around them, but in and through them, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing that can happen to you, nothing that hell can throw at you, nothing that can uh, eventually come your way, nothing can ever separate you from the love of God that has been pledged to us, extended to us, secured for us in and through Jesus Christ. It is absolutely unbreakable, that love. His hand and his hold upon your life is a permanent, enduring, lasting, inseparable reality. And nothing, nothing can ever happen that is going to take you away from that living God who has loved you thus in Jesus Christ. He has provided for you in every single eventuality that you face. You are free, therefore, from falling. God, our Savior, is able to keep you from falling and present you at the last, as he's always planned, uh, blameless, one now conformed finally and fully to the likeness of his Son. Um, and that's the freedom that we enjoy in and through Jesus Christ, through the power of his Holy Spirit dwelling within us, free from forsakenness, free from failure, free from fear, free from frustration, and free from falling. May, may God bless uh, our reflection on study of our soaking in his word to, to all our hearts. Let me just round off then uh, with prayer. Father, uh, it's, it's hard simply to, to run through a chapter like that when we, we want really just to, to soak as in a bubble bath of grace and glory and allow the, uh, the, the flavours and the warmth and the grace of your Holy Spirit who, who dominates this whole chapter simply to, to soothe and calm and refresh and strengthen our hearts and our minds and our lives that we may indeed bask in the glory that you've already given to us in your Holy Spirit dwelling within us and in that greater glory still to come in and through your Son. 
Help us, Father, please, to savor these truths. Help us not only to know them, but to live them. Help us not only to live them, but to enjoy them. And in all things, to give you the praise and the glory for them. And uh, how we thank you for your word, for this passage tonight, for our time together. And above all, together, we thank you for the gift of your son in whom we live. Bless you. And may your blessing rest upon us all for Jesus' sake. Amen.